Take out a copy of God's Word, and please turn in it to the 20th chapter of John, verses 24 through 29. This morning, page 907 in the Pew Bible. John 20, 24 through 29. <clears throat> we turn today to Thomas. Poor Thomas. All anyone remembers about Thomas, and all Thomas is known for is that he is a doubting Thomas. I doubt that that is entirely fair, so we want to carefully consider Thomas in this, the only account that he really plays a major role, but more importantly, we want to carefully consider the Christ who plays the major role in this and all accounts. And as we consider Thomas and Christ this week, and then John's purpose statement next week, we are going to be considering for the next two weeks the nature of faith. What is it really? I believe that many of us aren't all that sure, and I believe that because I know that I often am not all that sure, or at least I often live as if I'm not all that sure what faith really is. What is faith? What does it mean that we are saved, not by faith, but through faith? What does it mean that we walk by faith and not by sight? What does it mean that faith itself is the gift of God? What does it mean that faith is life? And what would and should my life look like if I possess this faith by the grace of God? I have no brilliant, though probably actually dumb, hook this morning. No Billie Eilish for you today, so sorry to disappoint. Um, But we shouldn't need a hook today. We are taking two weeks to look at faith. At this, the climax of the book, moving toward the purpose of the book, that by believing that by faith you may have life in his name. That's your hook. Life is your hook, and life is literally everything. Death, then, is the loss of literally everything. I was looking back this week through one of my favorite introductions to philosophy books, Luke Ferry. It's called A Brief History of Thought. I've mentioned it before But he opens, this guy's not a believer, but he opens writing about the one thing that we all truly desire above all else, which is what? He writes, to be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, not to die and not to have them die on us. But daily, life will sooner or later disappoint every one of those desires. You see, he understands that death is the problem. Ferry goes on to write about how the whole of philosophy really boils down to the fact of our mortality and then our awareness of that mortality. The fact that we are going to die and the fact that we know that we are going to die. When you get down to it and you set aside all the fluff and all the stuff, all the distraction and all the silliness, all we want is not to die. Why? Can't get away from it. What was I made for? Life is what you were made for. Life is what we are all ultimately after because it's what we were made for by the God who is life. And so this whole book, the last three years we've been spending in this book, the whole of John is here uh, to tell us, it's here to, uh, to reveal to us the Christ who is life, and to explain and illustrate to us the faith 
that is life and the object of that faith, who is, of course, this Christ. And so here this morning, as John builds towards the climax of the book, he, he brilliantly kind of brings everything together in this beautiful interaction between Thomas and Christ. Notice our title. I thought our title was brilliant, and then I Googled it, and other people thought of it too, so it's not that brilliant apparently, but I thought it was original. But you know that since I am contrary and since I am a curmudgeon that I'm going to pick apart the doubting Thomas assumption. But I want you to see that our title could be taken two ways. I want us to remember Thomas not for his doubting, but for his believing. This is about believing Thomas. That's really the emphasis of this text. He is Thomas who believes and is blessed. But I also want us to see that we are blessed in believing Thomas, in trusting the truth that he testifies here that he has seen. So that makes sense. We want to consider both the Thomas who believes and then building towards next week, we want to see faith. We want to see how we believe. And our belief is based on his words and his testimony. And we're going to do all of this while we're remembering that faith is life. Apart from faith, whatever you have, Apart from faith, you only have death. With faith, whatever you lack, you only have life and everything. So there's nothing more important for us to understand and have than faith. Do you know what it is? Do you have it? Uh, two weeks on faith. This week, more the illustration. Next week, more a detailed explanation. Uh, four points for us this morning. We're going to build our outline around Thomas and this idea that he is the doubting Thomas um, I want us to see ourselves in him, but of course, most importantly, Christ and what he does for Thomas and what he does for all of us. So Thomas, we're going to move from discouraged Thomas and see that his only hope is that he is actually ultimately beloved Thomas. And we're going to see the result of that in not doubting, but confessing Thomas and see how he is and we are also ultimately blessed as we close with blessed Thomas. So we're going to move away from this doubting stuff. Here's four other descriptors for this Thomas that you can file away. Let's read the text first. This is the most important part for this is God's word. I will read for you John chapter 20 verses 24 through 29. But please pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. If you would bow with me, let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you are the speaking God. You are the God who reveals himself 
to his people. Father, his doubting, discouraged, often foolish, sinful people. Father, we see that here in Thomas. Father, we've seen that in our own lives, each and every one of us. And yet you continue to prove yourself again and again and again. Faithful and patient and compassionate and kind. I pray that we would see that very clearly here this morning in your son's interaction with Thomas. I pray that we would see that this is how you deal with each and every one of us, your weak and sometimes wayward children. Uh, Father, there, have, there are many who have entered into this room uh, discouraged. There are maybe some who have entered into this room this morning doubting, confused, hurting. Father, I pray that you would use this revelation of your um, character so clearly in your son, Jesus Christ, to bring comfort and encouragement. Father, rebuke or correction if it's needed. But Father, we pray that you would do all that you do by communicating to us the Christ who is life. Give us the eyes of faith. Give us the eyes to see his beauty, and his glory, and his goodness, and his grace. And we pray that you would draw us to him. Father, I cannot do this. My words I cannot do this. But you, by your spirit, through your wonderful living and active words, can. So, Father, please, please work now through this time. Glorify your name. Edify your people. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, let's begin with discouraged Thomas. Why discouraged and not doubting Thomas? Again, in part just to be contrary, but let's look closely and try and sort out what's going on here. This is now the fourth scene and the third resurrection appearance in John chapter 20. In chapter 19, Jesus, the Christ, was crucified, died, and buried. Then in chapter 20, we get the first day of the week, verse 1. We got again the first day of the week, verse 19. Now, we just read in verse 26, eight days later. Remember, 2,000 years ago, in Jewish accounting, they, they counted inclusively. So eight days later includes the day that they're on. So eight days later means the following Sunday, the, the first day of the week again. Remember, John is writing with great intentionality, doing everything that he can to signal to us that something huge is happening here. Something new is happening here. The first day of the week drives us back to Genesis, drives us back to creation and to life. John has explicitly rooted the opening of his book in Genesis 1. John 1 is supposed to make you think Genesis 1. And now here, at the end of the body of his great work, as we'll see in point 3, John is explicitly connecting Thomas's confession to John chapter 1. And the whole point of all of this is that Jesus is alive. He was dead. Dead people don't come back to life. But he was dead, and now he is alive. And he is alive because he is life. And if all that's true, then that changes everything. Jesus has specifically told us, in 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Now he is explicitly showing us, I am the resurrection and the life, as he reveals himself here to his people. We saw first in his kindness and compassion that he reveals himself first to Mary in one of the sweetest, most beautiful scenes in Scripture. Then he reveals himself to the disciples we have considered his powerful presence. Verse 19, Jesus came 
and stood among them. We have considered the peace and the gladness that are found only in his presence. And then last week, we considered both the mission and the membership of the church. That's what we were made for. Amazing things have happened. Jesus is alive. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. Look at verse 24. But poor Thomas. That now in the Greek is actually probably better translated but, this conjunction day, but, hey, all this happened, they were there, they were glad, all of these things, but Thomas. Notice how well verse 24 is written. We have our characters, our setting, and our conflict all laid out for us in this one verse. Now, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus All that we've seen the last two weeks, Thomas did not see. All that the other disciples see, the presence of the Lord, gladness in his presence, peace in his presence, Thomas did not see it. Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. Why not? No idea. It's tempting to speculate, which of course we will do. But let's do it carefully. There's just a lot that we don't know. What do we know about Thomas? He is only named in the other three Gospels, just just his name. It's only in John that he gets a little more play, and he shows up in three spots. One interesting fun fact is that the proper name Thomas doesn't show up anywhere in ancient literature before the Gospels. Before this point, this is the first time we see the name Thomas used as a a proper noun, as as a name. It seems to come from the Hebrew and Aramaic words tome and tome, which mean twin. And so you read in verse 24 that he was Thomas called the twin. You see the footnote, follow it down to the bottom of the page. That is Didymus in Greek, which was used as a proper name at that time. So this could be his his Aramaic Hebrew name. Uh, This could be his Greek name also, both meaning twin. I don't know exactly how it all worked. What was his twin named? I don't know. It'd be doubly confusing. Uh, You look alike and you have the same name, right? Is one of them twin and one of them something else? No idea. Providentially, we do have two twins with us this morning, so welcome, Judy's friends. We love to put people on the spot here, so welcome. We're glad you are here. But we at least know that Thomas was a twin. The obvious question is, who's twin? Who's the other one? No idea. Uh, Bart Ehrman My New Testament professor in college, he loved to toss around the belief of some that Thomas was actually the twin of Jesus. How did all this work? Resurrection, how to explain this? Thomas, there's a twin. Look, here, here, here's this guy. He's alive. They look the same. We can trick them all uh, with, with Thomas. There were actually some early heretical sects that believed that Thomas was the twin of Jesus. And since Ehrman's main goal in life is to mess with the heads of young Christians, he loves to bring up, hey, well, maybe Jesus had a twin, maybe it was Thomas. Of course, there is no evidence for this at all. The idea comes from an apocryphal book written hundreds of years after John's gospel called the Acts of Thomas. That's actually the same source for the idea that Thomas was the apostle to India. I just read a whole book, was kept showing up on lists of, of one of the best books of the year last year called The Covenant of Water, and the whole book revolves around the people in southwest India who tie their roots all the way back to Thomas. Though there's not really a lot of 
uh, actual historical evidence that Thomas made it to India. Um, but in that book, the Acts of Thomas, the apostles cast lots to see who is going to go where, and the lot for India falls to Thomas. And Thomas cries out, wherever you wish to send me, send me but elsewhere, for I am not going to the Indians. What? I, sorry, my Indian brothers and sisters. Um, but take comfort in the fact that it's not true. It didn't happen. Thomas never uh, said that. Uh, point is, there's all these legends around Thomas. And there's just not a lot of information. We just don't know much about this man. All that we can know for sure comes from the Gospels. So we know that he's a twin. The other three Gospels tell us nothing. John's the only one that tells us anything. Turn back to chapter 11, verse 16. Here's the first time he shows up. I find a bit of a kindred spirit in Thomas. It seems, at least, that he was a bit of a pessimist, maybe. Maybe, maybe a bit of a, of a grump. You know, chapter 11 is the raising of Lazarus. It's the, the last uh, and climactic of Christ's seven signs. Death to life before the sign of his own death to life. Remember, Lazarus is sick, Jesus is told, and Jesus waits. Jesus lets Lazarus die. Then Jesus says, hey, let's go back to Judea. The Jews had just tried to kill him in Judea, so the disciples are, hey, no thanks, you know, why would we go back there? They're, they're trying to kill you. Jesus says, we're going. 11.16, we read, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. How do we read that? People interpret it in different ways. It's, it's just hard to know for sure. Is this big, bold, brave faith? Let us also go that we may die with him. Right? Is, is that what he's doing? Or is it more of a gloomy, pessimistic resignation? Let us also go. We may die with him. Right? You can read it either way. Most, and I, I think I agree with them, lean towards the latter. Like, well, whatever. Let's, let's just go die. Is it a lot of faith or is it a little faith? Flip over to chapter 14. Thomas part 2. The glorious farewell discourse. I would like when we finish John to just go back to 13 and start over. And just do the farewell discourse again. But in John 14 verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. I love that. We're talking about faith this week and next week. We all have troubled hearts. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. And what's his solution? He says, Believe in God. You say that to someone today, you're called a miserable counselor. I love that Jesus says, hey, you're troubled. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. We'll do that next week some. But it says, let not your hearts be troubled. Then he tells them he's leaving. I'm departing. I'm, I'm leaving you all. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, here it is. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know? The way. Jesus has just told them where he was going. And he has just told them that he himself would come for them and take them there. But Thomas is clearly confused. He does not understand the where or the way. And Jesus kindly speaks to him one of the great verses of Scripture, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's the where and the way 
and it's all Christ. Thomas should have known that. That's all we know about Thomas up until our text. Two single verses, and now this one short scene. So, it does seem possible, at least, yes, we're speculating somewhat, but it does seem possible, at least, that he may have been of a certain disposition, a slightly grumpier, more skeptical, some would say of a pessimistic disposition. Again, it's, it's possible, but I, I'm, I like it. Thomas, though, to be known only as doubting Thomas, I think, is unfair. Had he been there with the other ten the week before, I have no doubt he also would have believed along with them. Let's keep in mind, they saw and they believed. Thomas just didn't see. But all of the disciples doubted at some point. They are the doubting disciples. We are the doubting disciples. They were all just afraid and hiding behind locked doors until Christ came and uh, they saw the Lord. Why wasn't he there? No idea. But he wasn't, and he has been much maligned for it. Even Peter, the denier of Christ, didn't end up with his failure permanently attached to his name, right? He's not denying, there's no such thing as a denying Peter, um, but there is such thing today as a doubting Thomas. Why? Verse 26, let's, 5, verse 25, let's see where this comes from. Verse 25, he wasn't there, so the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, why does he specifically say that? Why does he specify so clearly, unless I see the hands and the side? Well, look at verse 20. It's because of verse 20. When Jesus had said this, he showed them, the other disciples, his hands and his side. So Thomas is asking for nothing other than what the other disciples themselves saw. For them, seeing was believing. They doubted. Everyone doubted the resurrection. No one thought resurrection was possible. They doubted until Christ came, and then they believed. It's no different than Thomas. Now, of course, Thomas is not faultless here. He should have believed, but my main point is that they all should have believed. We all should have believed. We have abundant evidence of the existence and the glory and the grace of God in his creation and his word. There's nothing special about the doubting of Thomas. It is the nature of fallen disciples to doubt. Christ had clearly taught them, clearly told them what was going to happen. Again and again, he had said that he would be raised, but it was just too outside of the realm of possibility for them to understand. They couldn't believe, well, until Christ comes to them. That's our next point. But first, since this is the guy known as Doubting Thomas, we are considering, and there is, of course, some degree of doubt or disbelief here. Let's, let's consider for a second what doubt is. One of the main things I want you to get this morning is that there are different kinds of doubt. Not all doubt is equal. And people count and, and categorize these different types of doubt differently. I like the simple breakdown of physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, and spiritual doubt. These are all kind of different forms of doubt. Physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, spiritual. We can't walk through them all 
in great detail. We'll talk about them briefly for a moment. But maybe the most famous doubt verse in the Bible, Jesus asks the floundering in the waves, Peter, Matthew 14, 31, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We all of us need to always be asking ourselves, why did you doubt? Or, not past tense, why do you doubt? We all doubt. We need to do the work of tracing those doubts to their roots and understanding what they are and where they come from and why we doubt. So, for example, some doubt is simply physical doubt. Yeah, sometimes I doubt and struggle. Why? Because I'm tired and because I need a nap. As D.A. Carson has said, sometimes the godliest thing that you can do is to get a good eight hours of sleep. But God has created us. A, a psychosomatic, that sounds fancy. It just means mind and body. A unity. We are body and soul, physical and spiritual. And these two things relate to each other and affect each other. As countless studies have shown, uh, regular sleep, healthy eating, and exercise are just as effective than all the medications that are just blindly being prescribed for all kinds of everything. Medications that we buy by by the way, have no idea how they work. I was reading a book, it was a psychiatrist, and he said he explained it as what we're doing with all these medications is like we're opening up the hood of a car and banging around with a hammer and hoping it kind of works out. We have no idea. Um, but we're, we're mind and body. And so as our bodies are, are healthier and, and working uh, better, we are more spiritually minded. Sometimes you just need to take a nap. So there is such a thing as physical doubt. Sometimes we doubt for moral reasons. The joke that I've heard many times from different pastors is that when a teenager or a college student comes to them and says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having doubts about my faith, the first question they ask them is, well, when did you start sleeping with your girlfriend? Right? That's generally those things go together. Often our doubts are just a cover and an excuse for our sin. And I could give many examples of this from my past and friends that I grew up with and doubts and how all of a sudden, oh, they're having these doubts. And it's clearly here's actually what they're wanting to do with their lives and, and with their bodies. So there's moral doubt and, and, and so on. There's different types of doubt. Doubt your doubts. Question your doubts. Work hard to really get to the root of them and sort out why you are wavering and wondering and particularly wandering. Why do you doubt? Now here's the question for our text. Why did Thomas doubt? Well, our, our heading of our first point here already reveals why I think he doubts. I think it is likely that Thomas's is an emotional, spiritual doubt. It is a doubt deriving from profound disappointment and discouragement. Three years he has given to Jesus. He has given his life to Jesus. He's given up everything to follow Jesus. Entirely given himself over to Jesus' body and soul. He has completely bought in. This is the Messiah. This is the hope of Israel. This is my hope. And it's all just completely fallen apart. It's complete and utter collapse from Thomas's 
perspective. The one who was meant to save Israel and save Thomas has just been strung up and crucified for all to see. He was beaten and broken and laid in a tomb. Maybe this is doubting because he is discouraged, Thomas. Doubting because he is close to despair, Thomas. And I know I'm speculating some, but I also know that for me, I am far more prone to doubt from discouragement than I am from intellectual or moral reasons. I am, I am completely and utterly convinced intellectually. I've, I've looked around, I've studied, I've sort of tried on some of the other options. I thought I was going to be like the cool white kid from the South who was going to explore Buddhism like when I was a teenager. I'm going to be a Buddhist. It was so stupid. It was so dumb. So I checked it out and I, and I looked into it and it was empty. Nothing else is intellectually compelling. Nothing else makes sense of this world, uh, both the beauty of this world and the brokenness of this world. Nothing else makes sense of the sin that is so clearly abundant in my heart and the sense of the guilt that I feel for that sin. That, that sense of guilt that proves that there is a God, a lawgiver before whom I stand accountable. I am completely and utterly convinced intellectually. I'm completely and utterly convinced morally. By the grace of God, I have been saved out of great wickedness. And I am convinced of the emptiness and the wretchedness of much of what our culture is holding up as. Look, this is good. Look, this is beautiful. Look, this is desirable. I used to love the things of the world, the wicked things of the world. And I'm very thankful that by the grace of God, I have begun to see them for what they are. Our world calls good that which God calls evil. We need to be very careful, especially these days, about entertaining ourselves with and celebrating that which God calls evil. So again, I'm intellectually and morally convinced. But sometimes I still struggle. Sometimes I can still doubt. And for me, at least... It always comes down to some sort of emotional or spiritual disappointment and the dis discouragement that can stem from that. Wait, hold on. I'm, I'm utterly convinced. I've given my life. I moved to New York City uh, for this, from the glorious South. I'm convinced. But this is it. This is all that it does for me. For my own ongoing, conflicted, struggling heart, for, for others, where's the glory, where's the joy, where's the life? See, my struggle is a doubt of discouragement. And I think that's likely what's going on with Thomas as well. So I understand what he's doing and saying. Unless I see what you saw, I won't believe. Sure, he's doubting. Just like the rest of them just like the rest of us. But that's not the point. In fact, the point is that he is that to some degree. But it's actually that very fact that makes the rest of this so good and so encouraging for us in our ongoing struggle with discouragement. Point number two. Here's what I want you to get. For this doubting and discouraged Thomas is most fundamentally beloved Thomas. This, this is the point of the text. This is who he is. This is how we should know 
Thomas, beloved Thomas. And don't miss this, especially if you come this morning doubting or discouraged. What is the solution to that doubt and discouragement? So you think it's a change to your circumstances. It's not. I've tried it. What's the solution? What was the solution for Thomas? Verse 26. Look at it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Stop there. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Look at verse 19. It's almost exactly the same. This happened before. And grace upon grace, it happens again. And just like last time, everything changes with the coming of Christ, with the presence of Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is both the what and the how of what you were made for, as well as the one who is the what and the how of the whole storyline of the Bible. Remember, the whole storyline of the Bible is about the presence of God, lost and then regained, and Christ is how. However you want to specifically characterize Thomas, he was sinful and he was miserable, but far more important and greater than that, he was loved. He was beloved of God, and love seeks the good of the loved. Love initiates, love pursues, love comes, and here Christ comes. Jesus came and stood among them, and pronounced now for the third time, peace be with you. you think peace is important? Three times in a few short verses. Jesus says very few words, but he says peace three times. Peace be with you. Even you, Thomas. We've already done this. Here it is again. Why? Because of Thomas. This is so clearly and kindly aimed just at Thomas. How patient and compassionate and kind our Christ is. He was, he's already done this for the ten. And he returns to do it again just for the one. And how much comfort would both the one and the ten have received from this personal, patient pursuit. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Stop. Look how specifically Jesus deals with Thomas. First off, there's just further evidence of Christ's deity here. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas said when he was not around. I don't think Peter was like over there whispering to Jesus. He said this, he said this. Like Jesus knows. So we serve not only a compassionate Lord, but an omniscient Lord. He knows us. I want you to never get over this. He knows us and he loves us. And you will find those two things perfectly together nowhere else. And I know I say this a lot, because, uh, but it's because I think it's very, very important and of great comfort. If you truly knew me, like actually truly knew me, all that I've ever done, all that I've ever said, all that I've ever thought or felt, you would want nothing to do with me. You would fire me immediately. You would not listen to me. You would have a really hard time loving me. He knows all of it. All of it. He knows me better than I know myself. There is sin that I'm not aware of that he is aware of. Down to the tiniest, most wretched of details, he knows me and he loves me. That's what's so amazing 
about grace. And he does this with each of us. And he deals with each one of us personally, exactly as we need, just as we see him do with Thomas here. Notice this. Look at it. Compare Thomas's words in 25 to Christ's words in 27. Notice, look at this. 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. 27. See my hands. 25. Unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails. 27. Put your finger here. 25. Unless I place my hand into his side. 27. Put out your hand and place it in my side. We haven't even read all of 27 yet. 25, Thomas has said, I will never believe. 27, Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. One of the main things I want to see, Jesus is not rebuking Thomas in this text. He patiently answers Thomas at every point and meets discouraged Thomas right where he is. Why? Because he loves him. John, our author, was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he appropriately has become known as the apostle of love. Because this one, John, so loved by Christ, wanted all disciples of Christ to understand that they too were beloved of Christ. The ladies just started 1 John this morning. And they're going to see this again and again and again. Beloved, John keeps writing to us. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Is not Christ with Thomas a perfect picture of a loving Father dealing patiently with his difficult, uh, fearful child? 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And how few people actually understand what that means. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. How did he love us? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This is what it means that God is love. This is what it means that God's, God loves us. Not this vague, general, yeah, you're great, everything's fine, I affirm you and I accept you and you're, you're wonderful. No, the gospel is the clearest revelation of the glory and of the grace and of the love of God. We just saw it Thursday night. Paul writes at the end of Ephesians 1, 6, that God has blessed us in the beloved Christ, the Son of God. He is the beloved of God. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Jeremy drew out the contrast of here's beloved son, and then what does God do to and through the beloved? Ephesians 1.7. In him, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's how God loves us. That's the gospel. Christ can come to Thomas here and pronounce peace on Thomas here and lovingly pursue and restore Thomas here because he has just suffered and died and risen again for Thomas and all of his sins, all of the doubt and discouragement, all the countless other sins of Thomas that we don't know about, and all of mine, and there are so many, and all of everyone's sin for whom he was dying. He took it all. He suffered for it all. He died for it all. And he rose again for the forgiveness of sins. 
Remember we saw last week, that forgiveness of sins, it's, it's the sum of the gospel. That's what Christ is doing. That forgiveness of sins is everything. If you can truly know yourself and feel yourself as a sinner, there's nothing you'll delight in more than knowing yourself as forgiven of sins. And if you have that, you have everything. If you can only see it and believe it. It is in that, in Christ, on the cross, for us, for Thomas, that we see God's great love. And that we see how important it is for us to understand ourselves and identify ourselves first as beloved of the Lord. Children of God. Point number three. Don't worry, we've got a whole sermon for this next week. The points get shorter and shorter as we go. But let's, let's quickly see the logical and glad result of such an experience of love. Let's quickly see the confessing Thomas. Look at verse 28. Here it is. You can at least make a case that everything in the book, all that we've been considering for three years, has been to get us to this point. This is uh, a climax in a book of climaxes. Verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Hey, maybe we've missed the point when it comes to Thomas. What should stand out about Thomas here is not his doubting, but his confessing. For it is from the lips, his lips, that we get the great Christological confession in the whole of the Gospels. This outstrips even Peter's confession of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's good. That's wonderful. But this... Both the grand claim and the great intimacy of it, my Lord and my God. You can't, you can't beat that. And by the grace of God, in the providence of God, that comes from the mouth of doubting Thomas. And it's pretty remarkable when you actually really go back and look and think about it. For the first time in this gospel, this gospel that is so clearly about the identity and the deity of the Christ, this is the first time that Jesus is addressed in the absolute sense as my God. And it's all from the mouth of this supposedly doubting Thomas. But this confession takes us all the way back to the prologue. And as we drive to the, the last two verses, the purpose statement next week, here we see the point and the fulfillment of all that was laid out for us in the very beginning. Again, here's good writing. I'm going to tell you what I want you to know at the beginning. And I'm going to talk about it and tell you about it for a long time. And then I'm going to make sure at the end you know what I was just telling you about. Introduction, body, conclusion. Introduction, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's the first thing John tells us because that's what you need to know. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Twenty chapters of exposition of that. And now we Hey, let me make sure I was clear on what I was telling you here. My Lord and my God. All we have left is the short purpose statement of the book. And chapter 21, the epilogue or the, the denouement, if we want to get fancy and French. So, so the main part of the book opens and closes with the main thing John is writing to communicate to you. This man, Jesus, is the Christ and the Son of God. He is God. And since chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him. And since chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life. 
Remember that life that is the thing you were made for? The thing that we are all looking for? It's found only in him. This is how and why believing in, or more accurately, we'll see next week, believing into him is the only way you may have life. And so we're going to try and look in great detail, specifically and practically, at what faith really is. Because faith is the only way you get and gain this Christ who is life because he is God. But for now, all I want to encourage you to do is to try to get over our over-familiarity and our sometimes apathy concerning the truth that Jesus is God. The most amazing thing that has ever happened is the most important thing that has ever happened, and that is the incarnation. That is that God has become man. The creator has entered into his creation to come for his creatures, his people, his wicked, rebellious, sinful people who had rejected him, his people who knew God, the all-powerful and all-glorious God, who spit in his face and said to him, no thanks, we'll exchange the truth of God for a lie. We'll, we'll worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We'll worship and serve ourselves rather than you, transcendent, all-powerful, all-glorious God. There is no greater injustice than the pride and unbelief that rejected the evident, glorious, good God of love. And yet, he still comes for us in Christ. This is it. This is everything. If you have this, you have everything. We confess that we believe that God himself has taken on flesh for the express purpose of saving ourselves from ourselves, from the sin and the death and the hell that we all freely chose. We confess that we believe that, and yet, yet we and I get all distracted and discouraged and conflicted and consumed with all sorts of things that don't really matter if this is all true. I have the forgiveness of an eternal debt of sin and the promise of an eternity of presence with the God who is full joy and pleasure forevermore. I'm all upset because like my hip hurts a little bit or because people are sometimes difficult or because my kids be keep making me up in the middle of the night. All, right, you know, just all these little things that we can get so frustrated about. But what if we could just read them in light of this and get a little bit of perspective if we could see that we have everything in having Christ. The experience of the loving God transforms discouraged Thomas into confessing Thomas. And so we also then need to see him and ourselves as the eternally blessed Thomas. That's point number four. Look at verse 29. And we will close uh, with this. Look at verse 29. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Brief, I apologize, brief grammar in Greek, but I think this is important. This is part of the reason why Thomas is tagged as doubting Thomas. Look at 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? It reads like a rebuke, doesn't it? Like this hypothetical question of rebuke. Well, what's wrong with you? You've believed, um, but you saw me. That's easy. No. Remember, there's no punctuation in the original Greek. There's no question mark at the end of Christ's words there. In the original, it simply says, because you have seen me, you have believed. That's it. There's no indication of a question. I don't think there's any indication of a rebuke. 
Jesus is not rebuking Thomas for believing based on seeing. That's what all of the disciples did. He's not rebuking him and then blessing us for believing not based on seeing. No, I think what's happening here is Jesus is recognizing and acknowledging the transition that is coming. Thomas is blessed because he saw and believed. How wonderful would it have been to see what he saw? Like what a blessing that was. He saw the risen Christ. The risen Christ came to him, came for him to reveal himself to him and to encourage him. Thomas is richly blessed. I think what's actually going on here is because of that, we could be tempted to feel like, hey, we've missed out. We didn't see what he saw. What about us? We can't see what he saw for Christ has ascended. He has departed, but he's already told us. Chapter 16, verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. How? The helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come, guide us into all truth, glorify and bear witness to Christ uh, through and by whom we hear and believe. So I think the point of this verse is not rebuke for Thomas and blessing for us, but it's blessing and blessing. Thomas has just poured forth the confession of the Christ, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that, but he commends him. You have believed. Blessed are you for seeing and believing. And blessed are all of you who have not seen and who have yet still believed. But that happens only because we hear the words that relate to us what Thomas sees. And it's not that sight is bad. It's that this is no longer the time of sight. This is now the time of sound. We walk by faith and not by sight. But that's just temporary. That's just for now. But then, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, this is amazing, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Protestants don't think and talk enough about the beatific vision. Just because some people do weird and mystical things with it doesn't mean that it isn't biblical and beautiful. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I have. What's the one thing you've asked of the Lord? What's the one thing that you've asked? This is David's. This one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the blessing. Seeing the all-glorious and all-good and all-beautiful God. A sight that is apparently so amazing that it, that it literally transforms us. A sight that is so amazing that it literally makes us like the Son of God. That's what God is doing. God is making us like himself. What a blessing. And it happens in this life progressively as we see by faith, and it will happen completely in the life to come when we see God by faith sight. And so we sing, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. See, sight is what we want. 
But sight is not what we get yet. And that's why faith is so important. Faith is how we see. Faith is how we get a glimpse of the glory of Christ that is the universal remedy and cure for all that ails us. Faith is how we are blessed and how we appropriate and experience the blessing of God. So Jesus says specifically to you today that if you have not seen him, and you have not, if you have, probably come talk to us, uh, you have not seen him, but he says that if you have not and yet you have believed, then you are blessed. So that's why we're in Ephesians. I am trying to convince myself, you know, all the teaching is just the stuff that I want to study. I'm trying to convince myself and you of every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says you already have every spiritual blessing. Jesus says if you have believed, then you are blessed. And yet we sometimes today say and so live as if, hey, unless I'm blessed, I won't really truly believe. Unless you do for me and give to me the things that I expect in this life, I won't truly and really believe and trust and rest. What we're seeing here is that it's actually through the believing that comes the blessing. And the main thing that we've got to get, is we're not trying to get things from Christ. We're trying to get Christ. Christ is the blessing. To be known and to know the blessed God himself is blessing. You are made for relationship, for communion. Happiness in this life is bound up in relationships. How much more then is true happiness, eternal happiness, bound up entirely in relationship with the God of life? This God that our text reveals to us so clearly and beautifully in this man, Jesus Christ, who is also God. Find your blessing in him. We all want not to die. We all want to live. One of the great claims of the Bible, one of the controversial claims of the Bible is that life is found only in Christ. And if you have found Christ, or if you have been found by Christ, better yet, then you are infinitely and eternally blessed already. So yes, I want you to think less automatically of doubting when you hear the word Thomas. I want you to think more of the gracious and glorious change from discouraged Thomas to confessing Thomas because he is beloved Thomas and blessed Thomas. But because of that, I want you then to work hard to think more of yourself in those terms. So often I'm so focused on and identifying myself with what I'm lacking and what I'm missing and what I think that I have to have to be blessed when God's word is telling me again and again and again, I already have it all in Christ. How do you identify yourself and think of yourself? Sometimes we're tempted to identify ourselves as doubting and discouraged. Begin to work into your mind that in Christ you are beloved and you are blessed. And just like sent last week, this confessing that we'll see more next week is a, a natural and glad response to all of that. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You see him today only by faith. So let me encourage you as we close to seek him by faith. Strive to get a sight through his, his living and active word. Listen, this is not an easy and an automatic thing, but it is worth everything you will give to it and give up for it. You will only be glad when you see the Lord and you see him in and through his word. Look 
Look long, linger, slow down, pray. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about and how not just to read your Bible, but to, to pursue fellowship and communion with the Lord through uh, Scripture, reading and meditation and memorization and prayer, come talk to us. Ask someone around you. Get some help. Do it with a brother or sister in Christ. We would love to help you get a sight of the glorious Christ in his living and active word. There is gladness to be found there. And true gladness is only found there. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so they told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Who can you tell this week that you have seen the Lord? That's what you're made for. That's what we're sent for. And the things that we are sent with are good and glad tidings. The gospel that is life in Christ, if you will only believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe and be blessed. Let me close you in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the kindness and the compassion that you have demonstrated to us this morning and demonstrating uh, that uh, to Thomas. Father, we thank you that you are a wise and loving and patient and compassionate Father. We thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sins and that you deal with us completely according to Christ and what he has already done to pay for those sins. Father, I pray that you would help us to have the eyes that we need this morning to see the beauty and the glory of this Christ, to see that we are blessed if we have him entirely by your grace, to see that there is gladness and peace and joy and love to be found in Christ. Father, if we entirely by your grace already have him. Father, do now in us, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I simply ask that you would grow our affection for Jesus Christ. And I pray that that growing affection for Jesus Christ would overflow in a growing affection for one another and a growing desire for more and more people to hear of and to know and to come to love uh, this Jesus Christ as well. Father, please help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.